special, uh, a special treat to have the opportunity to hear from some of our MicaCore uh, interns. They're going to tell you a little bit more about that program, but just in a short snippet, uh, MicaCore is a summer internship uh, for young adults focused on peace and justice, and it is funded through our um, mission shares that go toward our Great Plains um, Conference. And so we want to uh, give Cassidy and uh, Nathan a warm welcome to College Hill, and we look forward to you sharing with us today. Oh, microphone. <laughs> Good morning. Okay, uh, my name is Nathan Umba. I'm from El Paso, Texas, and I go to El Paso Community College. I'm majoring in mechanical engineering. I am Cassidy Locke. I was born and raised here in Wichita, Kansas. Shout out to my parents, they're right there. Hi, Mom and Dad. Um, I attend Fort Hayes State University in Hayes, Kansas, and I am an English education major. So, Obviously, we're here today because we're a part of MicaCore, which is an internship program that's organized by the Great Plains Conference of the UMC. And so through this program, what we do is we learn about the intersection of faith and social justice. And we work with social justice experts, speak at churches on every Sunday, and we grow in our faith together. And the program is based on the verse Micah 6, 8, which says, what does God require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So we use this verse as our foundation all summer to inspire us to do this work as our calling from the Lord. So this morning, we want to talk to you about an issue that is incredibly pressing in our country right now, which is immigration. Um, we're going to dig into this issue starting with scripture and then look at how we can respond as Christians to the current situation. Okay, um, so the scripture we're going to read today is um, Matthew chapter 25, verse 42 to 45. So here Jesus is saying, so I'm going to start with uh, 42. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they shall also, they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So what is the scripture calling us to do? In this situation, Jesus is talking about how we're supposed to treat one another, especially those who are experiencing deprivation of basic needs. The way we treat others is a direct reflection of how, how we treat Jesus. We see this in headlines every day. There are children and families who are seeking asylum in the US and are stuck at the borders without clean water without food, without blankets, children without their parents locked up in cages and neglected for hours. This is not an over-exaggeration. This is a very real crisis happening at our southern border. 
Immigrants have rights. They may be fleeing from violence or a certain bad situation in their home country. Seeking asylum is legal and separating the immigrants from their parents, from their families is humane, inhumane, and vicious. So as we think about this situation, we want to bring in our social principles of the United Methodist Church. So if you're unfamiliar with what the social principles are, it's a set of principles that we abide by as a church, and they are voted on every four years at General Conference. And we have two that are specifically about immigrants. And the first one says, we recognize, embrace, and affirm all persons, regardless of country of origin, as members of the family of God. And the second one says, we oppose immigration policies that separate family members from each other, or that include detention of families with children, and we call on local churches to be in ministry with immigrant families. So as a church, we agreed on this mindset and on these principles. And we agreed that immigrants are worthy of the same love, grace, and acceptance as anyone else. And these social principles say that we support unity, yet we see families being separated at our border. And our principles say that everyone is a member of the family of God, yet we see people being treated like they're worthless and unimportant, and this contradicts what we stand for. So what are we supposed to do about it? What are we doing about it? How are we advocating for these families to be treated with human decency? Sometimes we're afraid to take a stand because we don't want to get political. But as United Methodists, we cannot afford to stand by and pretend to be in a happy little bubble when there are masses of God's children being treated like animals in cages. We have to take action. I think we can do a lot more than we realize, and there are easy ways to get involved. Um, two weeks ago, as part of the internship, we spent time in Washington, D.C., and we talked about the issue of these horrific detention camps. We were working at the General Board of Church and Society, which is an office on Capitol Hill that works to seek justice and pursue peace on behalf of the United Methodist Church. And while we were there, we took some time to make posters to take a stand against the camps, and we wanted to share them with you. So here are a couple of the posters that we made. Um, it's a quote from Jesus, let the children come to me and do not stop them. And then the other one says, we're tired of these headlines. Close the camps. And then if you want to go to the next slide, there's the whole group of interns with the posters we made, um, like God saying, let my people go. So the point that we want to make is that democracy is created to be accessible, and the government needs to be doing more, and as constituents of Kansas, we need to urge them to do so. So we can write to our senators and representatives about this and make our voices heard to share our values and beliefs as United Methodists that everyone is a member of the family of God and should be treated like so. So I actually have um, an easy way to take some action this morning. So we have letters already written about immigration that you can take and sign your name on and we'll send them for you. We have a stack for Senator Moran, Moran, a stack for Senator Roberts and a stack for Representative Estes. You can, you can meet us at the back after the service and um, write a letter, meet us, have a conversation with us. We want to make it easy and accessible for us to take a stand together as a church. You can write anything 
or you could just sign your, your name on the letter to the representative and let them know that we believe about this, about this issue and we do not support dehumanization of people in camps. You know, when I hear um, when I hear young people like Cassidy and Nathan speak and find those ways to connect their faith with with social action in the world, it makes my heart happy, and it makes me it makes me remember what I believe to be the best of the United Methodist witness and movement in the world that we're a thinking people, that we are a people who are not uh, scared about engaging in the world, but that we are also a people of deep faith. And so I invite us to pause for a moment of prayer. Oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So Vicki read for us this morning uh, a text from 1 John chapter 4. And uh, there's a kind of renowned preacher, William Sloan Coffin, who once said this. And when I Googled it, I think this is probably a line that's been said by many people, so you'll probably recognize it. But the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. So I just want to say that again for a minute. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. I think this, this statement has some really profound implications for us, but I want to start out just by viewing maybe a little bit of a lighter clip about fear. This comes from Charlie Brown's Christmas special. Maybe you've seen it before. All right now, what seems to be your trouble? I feel depressed. I know I should be happy, but I'm not. Well, as they say on TV, the mere fact that you realize you need help indicates that you are not too far gone. I think we better pinpoint your fears. If we can find out what you're afraid of, we can label it. Are you afraid of responsibility? If you are, then you have hypengeophobia. I don't think that's quite it. How about cats? If you're afraid of cats, you have aleurophasia. Well, sort of, but I'm not sure. Are you afraid of staircases? If you are, then you have climacophobia. Maybe you have thalassophobia. This is fear of the ocean. Or chephorobia, which is the fear of crossing bridges. Or maybe you have pantophobia. Do you think you have pantophobia? What's pantophobia? The fear of everything. That's it! We sometimes feel like that, don't we? Oh my gosh, it's just everything. You know, Lucy, she's trying to diagnose, right, right Charlie anything. Brown's fears, and the, the conclusion is like, oh, it's just all of it. I'm just scared of everything. You know, this may or may not be true, right, from actually watching Charlie Brown, but I think it kind of hits close to home in kind of a silly way because we live much of our lives in fear. We may not even realize it. We may not even be able to name it that way. But, but fear lives inside of us. Fear that maybe we've done something wrong, maybe fear of other people's opinions of us. Maybe sometimes we actually fear that God is mad at us or that God won't forgive us for something we've done. 
I think we also tend to fear people who are different than we are, but we also fear people who we have been conditioned to believe could hurt us or threaten us or take some of our security. Sometimes we also fear losing our faith. You know, this past week I had a really interesting conversation with two people who were really, really fearful about me losing my faith. They were convinced that if I didn't interpret the Bible literally, which I don't, and I told them that, they, they were so fearful that my entire faith would crumble. And so we, we went in kind of a long exchange. In the end, I said, I don't think this is helpful. We're not ever going to agree. Um, and and I, I began to realize as I reflected on that conversation, and I told them this even, I'm not fearful of my faith crumbling. I, I think it's still intact so far, and I haven't interpreted the Bible literally for quite some time. Um, but as I reflected on that conversation, I began to realize that their comments were genuinely rooted in fear, but it actually wasn't fear for me. It was fear for themselves, right? It, it was, they were actually fearing losing their own faith if they let go of a very literal interpretation of Scripture. And it really caused me to kind of take a step back and to reflect on both fear, but also on our identity and mission here at College Hill. Because uh, we are known in Wichita for being a progressive Christian community, and our own stated mission, right, is to develop a Christian community wise in the ways of the Spirit, bold in the ways of justice, and graceful in relationship with all creation. So over these next three Sundays, we're going to look at, at these three parts, being wise and bold and graceful, as we think about what that means for us to be world changers. Because part of our identity and call as Christians is to go out into the world and to transform it, to share love and hope and joy and grace. And to do that, we have to cast out fear. So when we're wise in the ways of the Spirit, our social engagement and our social action in the world is spiritually grounded. It is a both and. It is not an either or. We are both committed followers of Jesus and we passionately engage with social issues. We are both people who worship God and we advocate for the poor, for women's rights, for full inclusion of LGBTQ persons. The list could go on and on. We are both deeply rooted in scripture and we are compelled by the same spirit to go out and change the world. So I want to give two examples as I think about this from my own life of people who kind of tend to gravitate toward more of that either-or mindset. When I was in college, I served for a summer as an AmeriCorps intern, and I worked with Heifer International. Um, Heifer International is a global organization seeking to er eradicate um, world hunger. And I worked at their uh, Heifer Ranch in Perryville, Arkansas, which is an education center. And I was an education volunteer. And so what that meant is I helped run their programming, teaching about the work of Heifer around the world, but also teaching about global hunger and poverty. And we had all kinds of immersion experiences and kind of um, like hands-on learning sessions that we did with the participants. And for me, it was a really intense summer as a young adult 
um, who had not personally experienced hunger or poverty. And I, I felt like I, I took this on in such a close way because I had to know this information, like top to bottom, statistics about global hunger. I had to um, enter into that process of helping groups um, kind of distill things, right? I mean, over and over, these same groups were having these aha, aha moments and, and deep questions. And many of the groups who came to participate in the programming were from church groups. Probably 99% of the groups who were there were church groups. And this made sense to me because I had come to know about Heifer's work through my own home church. That's how I had gotten connected with Heifer Ranch and with Heifer International. But something that was really puzzling to me was that most of the other volunteers who were there um, were not Christian. They considered themselves humanitarians, right? And they were very committed to this, and yet there was for me like a disconnect in why I was engaged in this work and why these other volunteers were engaged in this work. When that summer was over, I went back to school and I, I was connected with a lot of Christians on my campus. They were very concerned about worshiping God. They were very concerned about pleasing Jesus. And yet what that looked like to them was taking Friday night to, to go to a, 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 a house close to campus and sing praise songs and worship. What that looked like was going to campus ministry social events. And when I asked people to do things like these other Christians, right, to do things like, let's go serve at the local soup kitchen in Springfield, where we live, or maybe let's go downtown and take food to people who don't have homes. These Christians were suddenly too busy, right? They were too busy worshiping Jesus in order to go help. And so these people in my life very much considered themselves Christians, but they did not consider themselves humanitarians in any way. And so as a young person, I had this juxtaposition, right? I had these people in my life who I knew and I respected them a lot, and they were so engaged in caring about the things and the people that I thought Jesus really cared about, and yet they didn't really care about Jesus themselves. And then I had this other group of people in my life who, who with their mouths, right, so verbally professed this Christian faith and their love for Jesus, and yet I couldn't see evidence in their lives that they cared about anything that it seemed to me that Jesus actually cared about from reading the scriptures. The thing is that each of these groups knew half of the equation, but neither of them were living fully as people who are wise in the ways of the Spirit. Because it's, it's not an either-or where you're kind of swinging back and forth between I can either love God or I can love my neighbor. It's not either-or. It's, it's rather more what you see in this, this picture on the side. I like this, this, this arm outstretched with a heart and this arm stretched up with a heart. It's, it's a both and. It's about we love God and we love our neighbors. And people who are wise in the ways of the Spirit know that our social action and engagement is spiritually grounded. And in 1 John chapter 4, there's some instructions for us about how to live as people who are wise in the ways of the Spirit. And in that section that Vicki read for us, at the very beginning, I think there's an imperative point that we have to grasp up front. And that is that God loves us first. God loves us first, and that's why we, that's why we know how to love. 
that, that there's something about what happens inside of us that, transform, that transforms us. And you know, there's moments in our life when we truly get this, when we are truly able to experience or to grasp the depth and the power and the wideness of God's love, right? Like when we talked about with the kids or what we talk about when we baptize someone, that, that the love of God is as big as an ocean. And the reason that that seashell became a symbol of baptism is because it was a symbol of how if you try to take that seashell and scoop up all the water in the ocean and empty it out, it would take you forever. And it's the same way because God's love never runs out on us. It's an impossible task. That God loves us before we are born. That God loves the beautiful beings that we're created to be. God loves our flaws, our shortcomings, our failings. God loves who we are and who we become. God loves us. And it's in those moments when we are able to truly grasp this love that we're able to fully love and accept ourselves. And it is out of that place inside of ourselves that we are able to fully love and accept others. In this section from 1 John, it talks about casting out fear, right? I have to come back to that. How there is no fear in love. How we can think back to, to Lucy diagnosing Charlie Brown. You're just scared of everything. Pantophobia. We can think back to William Sloan Coffin's words that the opposite of love is not hate, but rather fear. Brene Brown has done a lot of recent work about fear and vulnerability. And she writes that in our contemporary American culture, we spend most of our time being afraid and that we are tired, but we don't know how to get out of the box of fear. And she argues that when we are afraid, when we feel that emotion rising in our hearts, in our bodies, because fear manifests itself in our bodies, that it's a moment to actually acknowledge our vulnerability and then to rely on something bigger than ourselves so that we move toward what we fear rather than away from what we fear. Because the, the, the fear itself is not the problem, right? But the, but the problem is that when we allow fear to take over and we start building these walls or we put, up, we put up armor to protect ourselves from whatever it is that we have convinced ourselves that we fear. And Dorothy Day teaches a similar concept in her own writing. She says this, Love casts out fear, but we have to get over the fear in order to get close enough to love them. And so, my friends, who is it that we fear? What do we fear? I mean, it is so true, as Cassidy and Nathan were sharing with us, that often we do fear the other, the other who doesn't look like us or who doesn't cook like us or talk like us. Many times this other comes to us as the immigrant, the one who is fleeing economic or political persecution, and we can dehumanize the immigrant other so quickly because of fear. We can build that armor around ourselves so that our hearts won't break with the things that break God's heart. 
We build that armor around ourselves so that we won't see these precious children being taken from their parents as God's children, much less as our children. This is not love. This is not love. But you know, I think we also fear people who disagree with us. People on the opposite theological or political spectrum from us are so easy to vilify, to dehumanize, to disrespect. And we can build armor around our arguments so that we never really have to hear the other person. We can build armor around our own point of view because we are so sure that we are right. And this also is not love. First John says there is no fear in love, which means that we have to do the very, very hard work of being vulnerable. We have to do the very, very hard work of letting God and God's love into our thinking. And ultimately, it's about that inner work that we do and that God does inside our hearts. In order to be vulnerable to loving another person's child as our own, vulnerable to understanding another person's desperation and feeling the weight of it, vulnerable to see the humanity in a person with whom we disagree, vulnerable to seeing things in a new way. First John goes on to say that in order to truly love God, who we cannot see, we must love our siblings who we can see. First John is not talking about our biological siblings here. First John is talking about the Adelphoi, the, the siblings in the church, and the Adelphoi, the siblings in the community and the world. First John is bringing to mind that greatest commandment that Jesus talked about, love God and love others. But here in 1 John, the author makes this into a reciprocal statement that one is dependent upon the other and you can't do one without the other. That you can't fully love God without loving your neighbor and you can't fully love your neighbor without loving God. Why? Because God loved us first. And it is God who gives us the courage to be vulnerable enough to move past the fear and to get close enough to see the other person in front of us. There's a, a beautiful story about a child who sees a jack-in-the-box. And her parents are really excited. She, she winds the crank and the music plays and they're waiting. And then the jack puppet pops out of the box and the little girl's surprised and she's scared and she starts crying. And it would have been so easy for her parents to take that jack in the box and whisk it away to make her stop because she was afraid. But instead they wait and they watch. And so she starts stuffing the puppet back into the box and they help her close the lid. And then she starts winding the crank again. And they're thinking, does she think it's not going to pop out again? She whines and she whines and she whines and pop. Of course it does. And she looks surprised, but this time she doesn't cry. Instead, she picks up the box and she gingerly kisses that little jack-in-the-box puppet. 
her fear has not entirely gone away. But by extending love, she has put fear in its proper place. Fear that invites us to vulnerability so that we can get close enough to love. And when we love another person, we see the face of God. And so let us be people who are wise in the ways of the Spirit, people who know the depth of God's love for us, people who cast out fear, people who love our siblings who we can see, and people who love God who we cannot see. Thanks be to God. Amen.